Hello, this is a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending Friday, the 25th of February. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on the podcast this week, you'll hear us chat with Eliza Riley, writer, actor, broadcaster, about her new book, Sheila's Badass Women of Australian History. And we also had a chat about when you flash your headlights to warn people of speed cameras and uh, ticket inspectors. Digger spoke to us about broccolis and cauliflowers and also answered some talkback questions from our listeners. We had Kat Stewart come on the show to talk about admissions, a new theatre show put on by MTC, and showers and baths. Is it a morning or evening thing and who showers four times a day? We discussed stoicism with Australia's former Foreign Minister Bob Carr because it's a sort of variety you get on breakfasters and we looked at the plethora of uh, hospitality staff who are little kidlets. The return of child labour. <laughs> Triple R. Eliza Riley is a writer, performer and director who co-created and starred in Growing Up Gracefully on the ABC and whose comedy web series made with her sister Hannah titled Sheila's has now been adapted into a book. Sheila's, badass women of Australian history, honours and celebrates the tough-titted ladies, her words, who hiked up their petticoats and fly-kicked down the doors of opportunity for modern Australia. And to tell us about it, the author joins us now. Eliza, welcome to Breakfasters. Good morning. I'm so excited to be here. We're wrapped to have you. Uh, what was the guiding philosophy behind Sheila's? The guiding philosophy? Wow, you! what a good question. My brain <laughs> is waking up in the morning. The guiding philosophy <laughs> of Sheila's was a hope and a prayer that I would add a couple of more uh, non-male figures to the delicious cultural tapestry that is Australia and give girls and boys and all of those people who have uh, gone beyond the binary, a way to make themselves be braver and help them just get around the world, have a North Star that they can look to, you know, before they, you know, try and negotiate a salary rise or break up with their partner, you know, who do we look to in these times? And I felt like Ned Kelly and Don Bradman just didn't cut the mustard. (laughs) There's also, you also mention at some point in the book that some of these women aren't exactly people you want to hang out with. Like they're, they're not just your classic sort of femme, you know, uh, femme fatales yeah. or saviours. So what is it about the women you pick? They're not, they're not you know, ordinary heroines. No. Well, a lot of people would argue that they're not heroes at all according <laughs> to the patriarchy and I kind of really wanted to examine that. Like there are a lot of women that I would not want to, you know, hang out with. They quite frankly, terrify me with their behaviour. Like, you know, Nancy Wake, a subject in the book, she actually judo-chopped a Nazi to death. Sorry, I know it's before, you know, it's before 9am. We shouldn't really be talking about judo-chopping Nazis, but here we are. And she did that and that terrifies me and I don't want to hang out with her, but I still admire her and I want to be like her. There's a few, I've I've not, you know, it's a very uh, colloquial sort of book. I've, I don't think I've seen Coinky Dink committed to print in such, especially in such a gorgeous book. Wait, really? Oh my gosh. That's, <laughs> that makes me so excited for some reason. <laughs> yeah. Coinky Dink. It's, I've tried to sort of uh, take these, you know, these real figures of Australian history and tell it in a way that I would want to be told at my local pub with my mates. Mm. And it's, but it's sort of, it is very colloquial and there it is very, um, it's just the way that I feel like I speak to my mates. But the thing is, it's so historically backed. It is researched to filth. And so (laughs) I wanted people to really trust the stories and trust what I'm saying, but how I say it feels, uh, yeah, it's just, it feels like very conversational. Were there any um, women who didn't make the cut, who you, at the start you wanted oh. to keep in the book and then they were too vulgar that you couldn't put them in? Uh, no. <laughs> no, no, nothing really goes. Uh, there's no real um, line and my beautiful publishers just let me fly, my freak flag, but there are tons and tons of Sheila's that I'm going to be saving for the next book, oh. hopefully, if they ask me. But there is there is many, many books worth of Sheila's that have yet to be told. <laughs> Do you think there are any modern-day Sheila's that you've seen running around on the sporting fields today? Oh, well, I mean, Grace Tame is such a good example of 
you know, the, the themes that have been, that hark back to the 1880s about like how media portrays women, how you uh, have to be a quote unquote good girl to apparently succeed. And like, it's just, I see her uh, today and it really, it, it does put a cold shiver down my spine, but it also gives me an incredible amount of hope and pride Mm. in her. You are, you're right that protection is the sales pitch of patriarchy. Can you uh, <laughs> dig a little deeper into that for us? Uh, yeah, just the, this idea, um, you know, I think that was in the Merle Thornton That's chapter right. where women at, in the 60s were banned from drinking in a pub with men, blowing the froth off a cold one at the end of a long day. And she sort of argues, and I want to argue, that, you know, having having people say, no, don't do that. You're, you're too delicate. You shouldn't do that. That's bad for you. Like I'll do that for you. Don't worry about educating yourself because I'll take care of that. You don't need to know about your finances. I'll take care of that. You are just a pretty beautiful thing and you should just take it easy. And I would argue that that is such a sales pitch for actually disempowering you. And yeah, it is tough, but you've got to get your hands dirty just like everyone else if you want to, I don't know, take that road to, I guess, like self-empowerment and self-actualization um, you got to do it for yourself. And that includes storming into a bar and drinking your own beer, which you were not allowed to do before. Uh, can you uh, give us a shining example maybe of m- m- husbands just being a ball and chain? <laughs> what? <laughs> Wait, do you want me to give you an example about why husbands are ball and chain? Yeah, from the book. So, for instance, I'll not- do it for you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me context. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we're talking, well, like, where we had women having to hide in uh, to to learn how to fly a plane or drive a car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that was an example. Uh, Loris Bonney, who was the first woman to fly from Australia to England, but she actually had to hide the fact that she knew how to fly a plane and drive a a car from her husband. She learned how to do those two things in complete secret uh, because she was nervous and probably very reasonably nervous that if she told her husband that she wanted to fly or wanted to drive, he would shut the whole thing down. And I think that that's an example of somehow that, you know, the husbands are often the obstacle in a Sheila's story. (laughs) And some husbands get on board, like Loris Bonney's husband actually got on board when she found out, when he found out that she wanted to fly. He made her the first ever, uh, like, aviator gear that was for the female body, the smaller body, which had never been done before. And he bought her a plane. So he got on board. But a lot of the husbands and a lot of the boyfriends don't get on board. And you know what? In the 1880s, they don't live very long. There's some small consolation. It's not causation or correlation. I'm just saying that, you know, the the boys don't live long once they, uh, once the Sheilas realise that they've got no use for them. You've provided a list of how Sheilas can end up in an asylum, which is quite striking. Greediness. Yeah, I know. There's this massive list in the book that there were more reasons, but my beautiful editors and publishers were like, we can't fit it in the book. Like, we need to move on. And, like, there were so many reasons. If a, It seemed like if you breathed in the wrong direction or you blinked the wrong way, you could be locked in a mental asylum. In uh, the Q mental asylum I speak about mm. in that chapter, which mm. is a Melbourne... I don't know if you guys have been there, but it's a big deal in Melbourne. And mm-hmm. I also talk about Little Lon, which is like the, the you know, the the underbelly of Lonsdale Street uh, yeah. in Melbourne CBD from the 1800s, which was just so spooky and so fun. Do you, do you still see in Mon Society mental health used as a weapon against women? Oh, I mean, come on. Thank you for giving me that softball question. I'm going to crack it out of the field. Yes, I do. (laughs) I do. You can just see on any headlines, uh, you know, someone who, 
you know, it doesn't, I'm, look, I'm speak. I'm using like the F word and the W word a lot, but really I'm speaking about like a catchment of people who feel like that they don't have a voice. And you, you still see that rhetoric of their, you know, their mental health or their well-being being in question if they're saying something that is really brave and super uncomfortable for others in charge to hear. The Vagabond gets a mention who was sort of an undercover journalist in Melbourne but had a stiff competition in Catherine Hay-Thompson. Yeah, yeah. Catherine Hay-Thompson was called the female vagabond, which, you know, in the 1800s, you're like, okay, okay, dad, thank you. (laughs) But she was the most amazing journalist. She, uh, you know, she um, smuggled herself in under the guise of a patient to the Q Asylum to write and whistleblow about the treatment of women in the Q Asylum. She also pretended to be a nurse in Melbourne Hospital and she whistleblew on the main um, head doctor there and the way and his like sanitation or lack thereof practice and she also sort of went in for the uh, in Melbourne for an asylum for the blind and she sort of was such an advocate for um, you know trying to make people see the the little guy or the little gal differently mm. she also dressed up in drag king and smuggled herself into the sex the sex working district of Melbourne and wrote about, uh, you know, sex working conditions and how there needs to be more equality and safer working conditions for the girls down there, which, you know, is like, this is nearly 200, like this is in the 1880s, which still like, it Mm. really warms my heart and really makes me just nod to her. Um, that's Catherine Hay Thompson. She was just amazing. And you guys as journalists and reporters and broadcasters yourself, like, I mean, I would uh, encourage you guys to get in some drag king and go. We could, we could be right now. <laughs> it's ra- it's yeah, radio. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just think it's so cool. It feels like that would be something really cool even today to see. Mm. Well, there are so many women in this book in the edition one, we'll call it. Oh, very good. Thank you. <laughs> okay. It's uh, Sheila's Badass Women of Australia History. It's absolutely gorgeous, which I said off air and you're taking no credit for. No, well, it is beautiful. It is hardback. It is ornate. It has the most beautiful design in it. This isn't, this is the gift that you give. This is the coffee table book that I've always dreamed of. (laughs) It's so gorgeous. It really is. Beautiful. Well, it's out via Pam McMillan, and we've been speaking with its author, Eliza Riley. Thanks heaps, Eliza. Thanks. Triple R. I was driving the other day and I had a car come driving towards me on the other side of the road uh, and flashed their headlights at me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I had another car do the same thing, which um, means, you know, it's a warning that speed cameras are ahead, so to slow down. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't had that happen for a very long time. I remember when I was a kid uh, and Dad was driving. That was that was really big, maybe in the 80s and 90s, that people would warn you with flashing lights. I don't think I've ever done that to another driver have you guys I do it I flash my lights all the time at people who don't have their headlights on and Uh it has worked I reckon twice and then they just go off into the distance in the dark and I hate it but I've never done it to water about speed cameras oh how do you know it doesn't aren't you crossing paths so you don't even well I see them coming and I go yeah and then it doesn't they don't do anything maybe maybe it's a slow burn like maybe the epiphany it happened a couple months ago and they turned it on and I was like Oh, it was so good. <laughs> it, what about that urban myth it, it, when you flash lights to people without their headlights on and then they chase you down? Like that's the thing, so you don't flash them? Cool, I guess I'm never doing it anymore. Urban, no. yeah. <laughs> you haven't heard that urban myth? No, it's okay. just some kind of Wolf Creek sitch. Yeah, probably. Right. Yeah, also, they go, how dare you flash your lights at me? Yeah, like people driving around without their headlights on, waiting for someone to flash them, and then whoever flashes them, Oh, it's them, like starting a fight. Down. What are yeah. you looking at kind of thing? Mm, yeah, uh, I am I, starting fights. I've had to mention that. Well, it seems like your personality. Yes. yes. I was told, <laughs> I, I remember I had uh, just a flashback. I was in rollerblades. Uh, someone said, literally said, yeah, that's how old this is. Uh, someone said, what are you looking at? And I'd heard... Just trying to balance. <laughs> I know. And I said, and I was like, oh, this is... Because I think I'd heard it in a movie or maybe a family... Mm-mm-mm. Anyway, I said, I don't know, but it's pretty ugly. Oh! And he beat the shit out of me in my rollerblades. Really? Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, that's horrible. That's awful. It so is horrible. You're on rollerblades. You couldn't just scoot off? 
No, well, well I was you fall. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's going to take forever. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, there was, it was, it was, oh, trying to I've get over-egged up. it. There were fisticuffs. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. So mm. it was even. Should have seen the other guy. Yeah. Kind of thing. That, yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, I was uh, dining in, in Williamstown uh, the other day, outdoor dining, and a lot of the restaurants, so there were like heaps of outdoor dining tables and chairs um and a man or young adult was running past with a helmet uh yelling out to everyone that was in the outdoor dining ticket inspector ticket inspector check your cars check your cars and oh, yeah, was yeah. warning everyone great love um that. i loved it running high knees really vocal uh, and probably about three or four people across the strip got up yeah. and went and and got tickets another wonderful service yeah that's a great service yeah we we're talking earlier in the week about the barn me index where cheap barn me's around melbourne and yes now, yeah and i'm like that's a good service i think a bot about where ticket inspectors are yeah. would be fantastic. Yeah, mm. uh, I've noticed some of them. Here's what happened recently. They were standing on a platform, on a tram platform, uh, like a super stop. Mm-hmm. And, and I, was, I was like, well, are they getting on or are they checking people getting off? As they get on. Oh, yeah. And so I saw one of them step on. Right, yeah. and then psych, no, oh. back off. Oh. <laughs> no, cunning. Yeah, so yeah. cunning. Uh, oh, but the, the the flashing. Uh, so, you know, I think they have it on maps now. It tells you if you if speed, speed camera. Yeah, mm. speed camera coming up ahead. That's probably why we don't see the flashing of lights as much anymore. I think so. This Another thing, when technology stripping us of our humanity. Yeah, that's what it's. That's what it's designed for. <laughs> that's right. Oh. I used to work um, at a pub and we had a courtesy bus and people, old guys would always come in and, and drink all the time. It's kind of like an RSL little sports club. Um, and whenever there was a booze bus, people would call up and say there's a booze bus. Yeah. Uh, so the staff could inform the patrons to encourage them to get on the um, the courtesy bus yep. because we did have that option oh, as wow. well. Um, so that was good. That was a nice, an, another nice service announcement. And, but then you'd also get a couple of old buggers go like, all right, we'll just take the back streets. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, no, that's not, no, no, we, we've got a service. Like, mm. just get on the bus. Mm. What I love, say, say booze bus, for instance, mm. and, you know, people take a turn off and then before they get to the booze bus and then the cops flee after them. Mm. Yeah. But... You know, if it's a legitimate turn off and you're like stone cold sober. Yeah. And you just have to turn. Yeah, I enjoy. The chase. Yeah, I enjoy the chase. <laughs> so you've had that happen? Oh, yeah, you? yeah. I'll suck those police resources. Don't you worry about it. <laughs> Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Dirt, dirt, dirt. It's where you grow your plants. Dirt, dirt, dirt. Hey, you got some on your pants. Can you stop singing about dirt? Justin Digger-Cowley is here to take your gardening questions for Down and Dirty. Morning, Digger. Morning, all. How are we on this bright, sunny, warm morning? Beautiful, isn't it? Uh, and it is it's, glorious. And uh, what do you think about Seca Turk? Seca talk back. Forget it. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Daniel, Daniel is practising the pronunciation <laughs> of that word during the song. <laughs> We probably should have spoken about that before. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Damn it. Anyway. Second, are you trying to combine secateurs and talk back? Talk yeah. Ah, oh, yeah. second talk back. <laughs> it would have been just ignore it. Just let's move on. There's All too right, much we to wait. get That's through. 60 seconds gone. Yes. So uh, what, what's on your mind in addition, in, in addition to answering caller questions? So something that I think we need to second talk about is it's time for fruiting brassicas. Yes. Everyone's favourite. Right. So to those underwear, mm. what is – I know um, what so it is. So fruiting brassicas are uh, your cauliflower and your broccoli and oh. the best of all, Brussels sprouts. Wow. Is, is anyone not a Brussels sprout or mini cabbage fan? Mini cabbage. No, I like, no, I like all of those. Yep. I've come around. You, mm. you know, mm. when I was growing up, it was not a good thing. I never had – I don't think I had them and ever tried them until my 20s. My parents were sworn off them. Right. So then didn't have them until oh, I bought them myself. Well, they're very they're good. They're magic. Yeah. Um, the thing about these fruiting, and the reason I call them fruiting brassicas is, is technically, sorry to all the botanists out there, as always, um, is that we actually like to eat them when they reach the end of their life season. So they're coming towards the end. They're starting to set seed and flower, and that's the part that we eat. Same as other brassicas like kale, for example, or wombok, they too will eventually go to seed, but we don't eat them at that stage. We like to eat them at leaf stage. So... 
the whole brassica family you can eat the leaves you can do all that kind of stuff it's just about what stage of life that you like to eat them at and the fruiting brassicas because they they are actually a cool season lover they like to take a very long slow time to do it so that's why we've got to start them now if you want to eat them during the cooler months because if you wait until winter to plant them you won't be eating them until spring Wow. Okay. So even though it's thir- like still 32 degrees today, for example, but this is seeds, obviously not seedling. That's right. So popping the seeds and now is perfect because when you hear the full story, it kind of makes sense, but they like their seeds to germinate in soil temperatures at about 19 degrees, which is where we're at now. So okay. they like to start their life in the warm weather and then they you know, capitalize on this warm weather to put on the bulk of their growth before everything cools down and then they essentially just slow right down to a, almost a shutdown through winter and then they get sick of winter and go okay i'll just i'll just produce my flowers now so we're just playing to their evolutionary path hmm. can we throw some queries at you of course always okay so texting on zero four six six nine eight one zero two seven. dion says hi digger i've got sandy uh, hydrophobic soil and was planning on planting an australian native garden should i use something to improve the soil or will the plants be happy regardless um the hydrophobic part is a bit of a problem so you would need to get some sort of organic matter in there but even if you just got some native mulch so eucalyptus mulch or tea tree mulch and just kind of put a big chunk of that on the surface and then go with your obviously coastal loving native plants you'll be absolutely fine okay Mm. Uh, Digger, I've got another one here from Midstrength. Uh, says, keen to get your thoughts on the following. We're considering buying a grafted avocado tree for our rental. In w- yep. our rental, uh, we want to know if it's sage, if it's a sage purchase, and how long to realistically expect fruit from Midstrength. Um, very sage purchase. It's an investment, uh, like any fruiting tree. It's not about you. It's about the future. Um, seven, about seven years before you'll get any fruit from it. Wow. Seven years. Oh, and they've yep. they got it for their rental. Yeah. Mm. I think I've got good land. Yeah, so they'll mm. be fine in a pot for that long. So you can keep repotting every two years, every autumn, uh, every every second autumn, repot it into a larger pot. And so by the time it starts to want a fruit, it'll probably need to be going into the ground. Oh, that's a good tip. Keep it in a pot. Mm. Yep. Um, cool. Did we get any more? Yeah, how, often, uh, how and how often should you change potting mix? Every second year. So if you don't, the whole idea of potting mix, it's so uh, what we call open and free draining. It's full of bark and sand. So though the bark in particular breaks down very quickly. And that's what it's designed to do because the plant's roots feed off the bacteria and the fungi and the soil food web in the bark. So once that decomposes, there's only really sand left. And so you end up with a, a container where you've got more plant roots than you have medium for them to feed from. So that's why they start to go yellow and cark it because there's not, nothing actually for them to feed on. That's why you need to replenish the mix every two years. It's only designed to last for two years. Right. Um, we had a couple of questions about uh, ones asked about cabbage, cabbage moths and cabbage aphids uh, infiltrating either Cavalinera or their own brassicas. Their other brassicas. What do you do? Do you have to get rid? Do you have to cut all the plants off? How do you? How do you? Uh, this it? is yeah. This is always a, a classic one. With aphids, you can kind of just squish as you go keep a monitor on and just squish them with your hands but right now if you're planting your fruiting brassicas there's a plant uh, i think we've spoken about this before on the on the show um it's called landcress or there's another version called uplandcress barbaria vulgaris so it's in the brassica family but as it grows and if you have them growing at the same time as your other brassicas the little cabbage moths are attracted you know the little white butterflies that are flying around mm-hmm. they're the worst ones and it's mm-hmm. been a massive season for them um one of your um, scientists was speaking about it's just an influx of the white butterfly Mm. all throughout victoria so this plant if you grow it in conjunction with your other brassicas the cabbage moth is more attracted to it than the other brassicas by smell so it will land on it and lay its eggs on it when those eggs hatch they immediately start to feed on the leaves the leaves of the barbaria are actually toxic only to white cabbage moth uh-huh. So they'll essentially kill the next generation and your brassicas for the rest of the season will be fine. And so what about um, if they've already got this issue, just have to pick them off? You just have to squish them as you go. Get out there, you know, make Get yourself squishy. up a little nice cool drink today and um, go and squish, <laughs> squish them to bits. <laughs> what about mandarins? Here's one. Uh, 
so these mandarins first spouted almost six months ago and they're still so tiny. Uh, I've tried outside, but something ate them and the sun burnt the leaves, so I've moved them back inside. I've put earthworms in the pots and they still haven't grown any bigger since their first few weeks of growth and no new leaves. They were seeds from a regular mandarin from the supermarket for what oh, that's worth. That's cool. Mm. Um, potentially could be uh, slightly sterile, but the fact that they actually formed and didn't continue to form is a potassium deficiency. So you need to liquid fertilise with potassium. Can you just buy that from a nursery? You can, yeah, just buy that from a nursery or a sausage shop or, you know, anywhere <laughs> any common like that. Um, and But if instead of putting the worms in there, maybe by the sound of it, they've got a worm farm. With any citrus, you've got to up your feeding regime. So four times a year, two or three big handfuls around the base of the roots and water it in well. Great tip. Beautiful. Uh, was there anything else there, Bobby? No, I can't see any more texts coming oh. through at the moment. Sorry. Oh, and everyone's too scared to call. Um. <laughs> I, I could talk for another 25 minutes if okay, you want. Okay, great. Uh, well, um. hang on. Before you do, <laughs> will the saplings that have come up uh, from my avocado trees fruit? Um, this, is the, this is a common one. Um, we won't know until they mature to fruit, which is at least seven years. Mm-hmm. Oh, Okay. <sighs> Long way so, to game. So it'll be a sizable tree before you find out it's a dud, you know. So, um, <laughs> but they're pretty you just trees. Have to wait and see. At least they look nice. Pardon? They look nice anyway. So they're beautiful. Fruit. Yeah. And what, there's a big, um, you know, influx in avocado trees. You've got a sunny room. As an indoor plant, they look magnificent. Oh, because you can grow it from but, an avocado pit, can't you? I've had friends do that where they put the, this, yeah. Oh. Exactly. If you just crack the pip, soak it in water for, you know, hang, hang it by, um, you know, over the top of water for a while and water's just touching it, it'll sprout roots Then you can just grow it in a pot and it could be an indoor plant until you find out. Yeah. So there's no loss. Uh, oh, okay. Someone oh, someone just said, someone just texted and said, what are you all talking about? Gardening is the answer, the short answer. Gardening. If you've got some gardening questions. My Fuji apple is fruited for the first time in four years. How do I know when to pick them? Sorry, I missed My Fuji apple has fruited for the first time in four years. How do I know Fantastic. when to pick them? How do I know when to pick them? Yeah. Um, smell. Get down, right down into the skin and just smell. If you actually smell the apple, pick it. Oh, oh good tip. Right. Good. And what about with summer veggies? I've got a question, a selfish question. When, when I find it really hard to let go of them, like if I've still got tomatoes and stuff growing, can I just keep them going? How long can, until I have to pull yeah. the plants out? Absolutely, with tomatoes because they may be indeterminate varieties, which means that they'll keep fruiting as long as the weather stays warm. Mm-hmm. So keep them going. I know they look a little bit trashy, but a good way, you know, a good kind of guild planting technique is if you want to start your brassicas, put plant the brassicas in and around the tomatoes. The smell of tomato will keep the other insects away from the brassicas because tomatoes are toxic. And over time, as the brassicas grow through, the tomatoes will die off and you won't have to worry about doing anything. Oh, great tip. Anyone else mm. listening? Or anyone else texting you want to have a question for Digger? Uh, well, I had some feedback, some personal feedback, because I asked Digger about salvaging a Christmas tree. Oh, uh, yeah, how'd it go? Well, the feedback is, could you please let Digger know that our Christmas tree is doing really well, thanks to his advice, oh. and has a ton of new leaves. Oh. Not enough for a printing October, as he advised, but it's definitely alive now, and we're extremely grateful to him for that. Oh, <laughs> there we go. Fantastic. <laughs> so, to, <laughs> so to that other caller, we're talking about saving lives. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's what we're about here at Triple R. Uh, anything else you want to get off your chest, uh, broccoli? Um, cauliflower wise or anything absolutely full geek um plant knowledge so they prefer a 7.5 ph soil so if you can do some ph tests somewhere between 6 and 7.5 is the sweet spot um and with your fertilizer don't over fertilize so if you're using home manures your chook manure is preferred if you're using a store-bought fertilizer look for an npk ratio and that's on the ingredients on the back npk of four three two because a lot of people who put in too much nitrogen, they just produce massive leaves and then they never get them to head up to get their broccoli or their sprouts or their, their cauliflower. They're just massive leaves. So it's important that they feed on phosphorus later on in their life and that's what produces the, the head that we want to eat. All right. What about short answers for the following? Oh, yeah. Um, if they keep changing potting mix and the, potting, the pot gets bigger every time, where do they stop, basically? 
They can't. They said the pots can't exactly. be flat. Flat anymore? What do I do? I think that's a real estate question. <laughs> Move yeah, then, yeah, yeah, that's right. Then you've got to um, yeah, get some. It's got to go into the ground eventually. But it depends on the plant because they all have. They reach a certain size. So some plants that will stay under two meters in height will stay in a pot their whole life. Okay. All right. I think uh, we got to go. Yeah, guys. Sorry, you missed the ball. He's been here, he's been here for <laughs> yeah. twelve minutes already. Uh, Digger, thanks heaps, and let's do this again. Pleasure. See you in a couple of weeks. Thanks. See ya. Melbourne's own Triple R. Kat Stewart is a beloved and Logie Award winning actor with a stellar career across stage, film and television with memorable screen roles in Underbelly, Offspring, Tangle and Five Bedrooms and stage credits, including numerous productions for Red Stitch and the MTC. Kat is back treading the boards in Admissions, which opens at Southbank Theatre in March. And to tell us about it, the multiple actor award winner joins us now. Kat, welcome to Breakfasters. Oh, thank you. What a nice introduction. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, what's it like to be back rehearsing and on stage? Is it uh, as emotional as one might imagine? It is. It's, I don't think it's quite um, sunk in yet, to be honest with you, because, you know, we're all masked up and being incredibly careful, as, you know, all of us are. But I think it'll only be when we're actually in the theatre, which will be next week, we'll start teching. I think it'll start feeling real then, but I'm sort of I'm still holding my breath a little bit, um, but I'm, the thought of it is just blowing my tiny little mind. <laughs> Very excited. Do you feel out of practice or is it like riding a bike? Oh, I always feel out of practice. Every job terrifies me. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but it's no, I'm, I'm loving this play. It's a really slippery, tricky one, and I'm loving the people. I'm just loving getting my teeth stuck into theatre. There's something about, you know, collaborating and really kind of nutting something out with a group of really smart you know, wonderful people that, you know, it's just it's so unique to theatre, so I'm, I'm loving it. I want to know more about that description of slippery because the play <laughs> says it's about hypocritical good intentions. Can you tell us what, what you mean by that? Why is it so tricky to execute? Well, it's, um, it's, if I was to give you a soundbite, I would say it's a black comedy about white privilege. And so it's, it's looking at foibles of a group of, uh, you know, ostensibly progressive well-intentioned, you know, people are through the um, the education system in the States. Um, and, you know, people are flawed and there are holes in some arguments and um, it's kind of, I guess, savouring and uh, having fun with those those kind of foibles um, without, without, you know, punching down. It's very much, mm. I think you would say it's um, a play kind of by the left, for the left, um, uh, yeah, having fun with the left, um, yeah. and I think I think it's there, there. There are tricky conversations in there, but it should entertain. But also, when I first read it, I I sat up really straight and I felt uncomfortable with some of the material, and I thought, gee, this is this is interesting. So I think it's a really provocative piece, but hopefully, it'll also be really entertaining as well. Is it sort of downstream from Felicity Huffman and Laurie Lachlan and that admission oh. scandal? <laughs> well, it's set. Yeah, well, that's, it's that world. It is. Um, but it was actually it's actually set in 2015-2016. So it's pre-Trump, pre all of that um, scandal. But yeah, that world and that kind of those sort of stakes, where you've got these people that believe you know getting into an Ivy League is life and death. Mm. It's, they'll do it. They'll do anything. What about? Uh, comedy like it's a, it's a satire does it how does that change the rehearsal process do you think a, a rehearsal without an audience is just a world away from when you actually have flesh and blood in front of you it changes everything because i think after you know four or five weeks of rehearsal you can also lose sight of what's funny and the audience will tell you what's funny and different things will be funny every night so in terms of how you play it i think you always just go for the truth and maybe sometimes you just go after the truth, it was more attack with comedy, but I think the basics are the same. But, yeah, it's going to be so interesting to get audiences in front of us. And I think we start previewing on about the 5th of March, so we get about four or five previews in before we open, which I think is just going to be, you know, really, really interesting. I see there are a couple of nights where people can stay after the show and join a conversation with a cast and creative team. Have you experienced this before? What's a feeling? I guess after a show I imagine you're on a high and then you have to sit down and chat with the audience. You hope you're on a high. Wishful thinking. It's going to be one extreme or the other. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah no, they, they, this is something NTC like to do, and I'm Red Stitch do it too sometimes. Um, but yeah, you you come out, you know, get get dressed back into your regular clothes, gather yourself, and and have a chat with audience members about about issues of the play, and that's always really exciting to hear directly without the, you know, not it's not the. Um, 
opening night chat, which is always really kind, you know, yeah. when people are really honest and, you know, and, and it, you can actually talk about the issues. And this is a, it's a play with teeth. So I think there'll be plenty to talk about. I think those, those talks will be really interesting. Um, this play obviously talk about, talks about the Ivy League in the States, but what's, that's, which is quite a different experience to Australia, but here in Melbourne as well. What's the, how relevant is this to the local audience? Has it been altered at all? Has it been what? Sorry, like oh, no, no, we've been no, yeah, no. Sorry, I, I was caught up to what you meant. Um, no, no, we're playing. We're, we're doing the accents. It's absolutely set in New Hampshire, um, but I think, like, it, I, I don't think we can let ourselves off the hook because yeah, it's set within the education system, but it is exploring white privilege, and I don't think we're uh, we get off the hook there in in, uh, in Melbourne, Australia. I think it, there's something mm. there's something for us to reflect on. I've certainly found that to be the case. It's kind of, you know, you like, yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's interesting. It's yeah. interesting. Just on accents, do you have a theory, and maybe this is wrong about why Australians are inordinately uh, good at them? I think... I hope I hope we we're good at them. Uh, in in this, uh, I think it's because we're just so used to absorbing content from everywhere else. I think Americans, you know, some Americans are true to get accents, but but I think they find Australian accents almost impossible to do. I think it's because we're just exposed to accents and we're used to. Yeah, we're exposed to so many so mm. so much content from overseas, and perhaps you know the British and the Americans aren't as much. And, I don't know. And now that we're out of lockdown, what was the without getting too dark what was the I, I read that you were doing voiceovers in your cupboard or whatever what, what, was there a moment I was like oh my god I can't believe this is happening uh, was it in the last two years as a sort of an acclaimed oh, act, actor to, to be honest with you the cupboard was my happy place <laughs> <laughs> I was doing you know we're doing remote learning with two kids yeah. under nine you know, that was kind of a, that was when everyone had to be quiet and, you know, <laughs> I quite liked it. And I was working, so that that felt good. Um, yeah, no, there weren't, look, you know, you ask people how they've been and they just look at you like, what kind of a question is that? I don't, it, there were highs, lows, good, bad. Yeah. But yeah, I, I was very happy to be in my cupboard, I've got to say. Yeah, man. <laughs> um, do you think audiences will be out of practice being an audience? Um, I've seen a couple of plays in the last month and... It is the best feeling, mm-hmm. you know, whether, you know, masked up, who cares? You're just able to absorb something without a competing screen, without other things going on in the house, just to be with something that's pulsing and alive and to laugh, gasp, do all those things as a collective. It's just oh, it's magical. It's just so great to be back. And I think everyone will get their sea legs back pretty fast. Mm-hmm. It's just such a wonderful feeling to be back in the room together again. Do you have a preference with film or stage? Obviously, you get that instant uh, engagement with a crowd when you're on stage, or do you just prefer the combination of both? I think I think I like to I like to do both. I, and I used to, it, you know, whatever you're doing the most of, you feel the most comfortable with. I used to just be a complete theatre person. That used to be all I did. Um, I did ten years with Red Stitch, and that was kind of my thing. And then, and and so then, screen felt a bit, you know, awkward. And then, you know, I did more screen for a while. So, I like them both for different reasons. The theatre is great because you get, you know, the response. It's a transaction with the audience. You know, your partners in this experience, and you feel if they're shifting in their seat, or if you've lost them, or if they're on side, or that's really exciting. And to do a story in sequence is great. Um, and the the kind of the camaraderie you get with your cast is really magic. But then I love I love screen too. I love that you know nothing's wasted and the detail and the nuance of that too. So I just yeah I like to mix it up. It's great to be able to do both. You play uh, Liz in five bedrooms. It's on Paramount Plus. Is is there a change that you've observed when you're approached on the street when something maybe drops on live free to air and it's a moment versus people streaming in their own time? Or do you get a handle of how people are consuming your content? Um. I, I don't know the how, I don't, maybe not from that side so much, I haven't noticed such a difference, but certainly I consume content differently, like I, 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 I want to binge things, I want to, you know, hit it, if I, it's like a good book, you know, if you're, if you're into something, you just, you want to put everything else down and just, you know, have it all at once, so I think it, it feels right to me that series, you know, more and more dramas are turning up on streamers and that we're moving away from, net, you know, traditional network drama, and it also means you don't have to worry about the annoying commercial break you know it frees <laughs> up the writers to you know you don't need a hook you know mm. you know I, I think it's really 
it's it's freed up the form so much and um yeah, so it felt right for because five bedroom started on ten, but it moved to Paramount Plus, and that it just feels right to me. Mm. Can I also just ask about how big is my trailer, and if there'll be more of that, and uh, oh. any oh, any, so any, nice. so, any showbiz navel gazing? <laughs> That was so much fun. Actually, we're, we're, we're Ange Pulverenti and I, who's a good mate, that's how it all happened. Um, we are looking at, um, at doing some more of them um, probably next year. I'm not sure. But, yeah, there's, um, that, was, that was great fun. The two of us got together when we, we found two, two um, really successful um, people from the entertainment industry who either had or hadn't worked together and had a, a really great four-way uh, conversation about... Um, about what it is to have a life in the entertainment industry. And, yeah, we, we loved it. It was on ABC Radio. Excellent. Well, in the meantime, admissions opens 5th of March, goes to the 9th of April, and as Bobby mentioned, there'll be a meet and greet. Yes, there will, at two of the shows. Uh, and so for tickets and info, you can head to mtc.com.au. It's very exciting. Uh, and do you feel lucky to be involved in Melbourne at this moment? Oh God, yes, yes. No, this is yeah. This is those those two years you, we talked about in my cupboard. You know, this sort of thing. <laughs> this seemed like a pretty big, big kind of elusive dream. So I'm so happy. All right. It's new satire, admission starring Cat Stewart. We've been speaking with the actor. Thanks heaps, Cat. Thanks so much. Triple R. Um, you know, when I started this job. Uh, six, seven months ago, whenever it was, I had friends ask me, um, so are you going to, like, shower the night before? Just Such so a you classic can... question. Yeah. Your routine. It's all anyone ever wants to Everyone know. Everyone wants to know, right? <laughs> and, I mean, I've just always shower in the morning. It just wakes me up, freshens me up and everything. And they're like, yeah, but, I mean, mm. you're not going to have that much time in the morning now and you're getting up earlier. But I, I don't, even if I have a shower in the evening, I, I, I can't help it. I wake up, I just need to have a shower just so that I'm fresh and, and get in here. Um, Abby will do it. She, she'll have a shower the night before and then she can just get up and go to work and she's mm. prepped everything. She's like, I'm clean. I'm like, yeah, but are you awake and really fresh? Mm. Like, I don't know. Are you, do you guys shower in the morning, in the evening? Not for both? this job, but I was always a morning yeah. shower person. But it would wake um, my partner up. Oh. So I don't, I don't want to do it. Do yeah, yeah. We've got two bathrooms, thankfully. So I use the other one. Otherwise, yeah, yeah I'd be away. But yeah, it. I guess if we just had the one bathroom and it was. Oh, we have. Mm. Yeah, I, that would mean me just going to a different bathroom, I guess, because there are. Yeah, but no, I just don't. And plus, I, I reckon from the time my alarm goes off to the time I leave the door is about <laughs> eight minutes. Oh right. Quite, I get dressed in the dark. I brush my teeth and I go. That's okay. It, you know. Yeah. Um, and oh, so, that, that's that's a quick turnaround. That's that's good. Yeah, I mean, I also don't put much effort in, as you, you can tell. But the <laughs> listeners will never know. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I'm about twenty minutes. I think I have a little bit of time with winning in the morning as well, and then I, I come I come out. Um, but yeah, I I think even in the evenings though, uh, I'll probably have is two showers. Two showers is okay to have two showers a day. I think three is a bit excessive. Fr- a friend of mine used to. Um, produce ABC Breakfast News TV, mm. and so that's a, that's a crazy early start oh, time. Like they? I think she was there at three thirty or something oh. like that. Mm. And she sometimes said sometimes she'd have four showers a day. Four showers. One to wake up in the morning. Yeah. One when she gets home from work. Yep. Then she have a nap. One after her nap to sort of wake herself up, and then one before bed. <laughs> really? <laughs> Not on every day, but she's like sometimes it just happens. Oh my goodness, yeah. that is that is very <laughs> excessive. I yeah, I think I might have two. Sometimes I just have one. And probably go to bed stinky. But anyway, um, but yeah, two is probably my max. One of my best mates um, was dating someone who had forty-five minute showers. Like had what? a like a routine of what they did with their body and it took 45 minutes. So my mate, um, who when she was dating her, it, she had a shower at her place, five, five, ten minutes, however long it took her. She got out of the shower and her partner told her to go back in and wash herself properly. <laughs> because, and she, was, she thought she was joking and she kind of just laughed. She's like, no, please, I need you to go back in. And wash yourself properly. Did she come out dripping in mud? I mean, what's the problem? So she went back in there. I was like, what did you do? And she said, well, I just stood there for 15 minutes because I'd already washed myself. Okay. Anyway, they're not together I anymore. I was mask. just going to say, yeah, yeah that's yeah, it. Exactly. Don't tell me how to wash. I don't think I've mastered having a shower. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I don't have a routine. You need I a partner like this. To yeah, say. exactly. You need to because really you're on your own. I mean, no one teaches you how to have a shower. <laughs> they, yeah. They, oh, yeah. Early on. Oh, but you forget. Yeah. No one's there on your 21st birthday saying, all right, Daniel.
it's you know the, the bad habits just continue because no one's there to accept your friend. Oh yeah, well not my mate. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, <laughs> but you know, like a facial scrub. People give you presents for the shower. Yes. Yes. Which, if you're anything like my mother-in-law, you just leave on a shelf <laughs> for years because they're use. too good to use. That's yeah. right. And I still have because of that so. Longford gas explosion and also the water restrictions. Oh, yeah, I still have yeah. absolute guilt about anything that ticks oh, over yeah. three minutes. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Four minutes. Four minutes is all all you need. Yeah, I definitely don't have long showers. Yeah, for sure. And I think that is a thing going through the water restrictions. Mm. It's like, oh no, you've got to be tight. And it's you know, then there's moisturise. Yeah, so people give you these <laughs> gifts, and then that upsets your routine. You think you've got something going on, and then you get to the bottom of it. Jeez, remind me never to give you anything. Oh. Nice. <laughs> It's just hell on earth, Sharon. <laughs> I'm sorry I brought it up. Um, what about a bath? I mean, I haven't had a bath in any of the apartments that I've lived in <gasps> for the last, oh, probably close to 10 years. Mm. Yeah, yeah, 10 years. So the only time I've had access to a bath would be um, when I'm on uh, at a hotel or oh, something like yeah. that. But don't always have time. Or it's been summer and it's like that's the last thing I want is to get into that bath. Um yeah, do you guys have baths? I bloody yeah. love a bath. And you've got a bath? Yeah, so yeah. we moved into our current place almost a year ago and before that hadn't, I hadn't had a bath since I lived with my mum and dad. Yeah. And um, don't use it, you know, you think, oh, yes, bath, but mm. it's so, it's such a nice thing to yeah. have. I feel like it's a real, real privilege. I think there's yeah. nothing unsexy, you know, uh, when couples <laughs> have baths together, there's nothing unsexier than the second person getting in and, like, displacing water. <laughs> no. Gripping onto the side. <laughs> yes. What a wonderful visual for everyone in the morning. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Triple R. The longest-serving Premier of New South Wales, Bob Carr, later entered federal politics, serving as Australia's Foreign Minister under Prime Ministers Gillard and Rudd. The renowned bibliophile is author of books including Thought Lines, What Australia Means to Me, Diary of a Foreign Minister and Run for Your Life. And this Saturday, he's part of the inaugural Stoicon X Melbourne at the Greek Centre for Contemporary Culture in the CBD. And to tell us about it, the Honourable Bob Carr joins us now. Welcome to Breakfasters. Yeah, great, great pleasure to be talking with you. Thanks very much. Um, can you outline for us the tenets of Stoicism and why this philosophy resonates today? As a major theme in Greek philosophy, I'm no philosopher and I haven't pretended to be, but I did enjoy a Roman popularisation of the, uh, the Greek Stoic uh, school of philosophy, and that comes from the Roman emperor of 160 to 180 AD, Marcus Aurelius. And in his meditations, he spelled out a philosophy that lays down an acceptance of the end of life, no afterlife, and an obligation to do public service, to perform public service in this life. And that was the, (laughs) excuse me, I got a bit of a cough. That was the the starting point for uh, reflections that he wrote in his, in his diary while he was campaigning on the frontiers of the Roman Empire. Acceptance that life is short, you end up being a, a grain of dust, um, as you were at the beginning, uh, in, in the origins of your life, of life, and your obligation to make sense of this is to do so by finding public duties to serve your fellow man. Uh, what do you think happens to a person when we lose sight of this view? Um, <laughs> I think, I think it's it's obviously very natural. Thinking thinking of the the history of religion, it's very natural for people to yearn for an afterlife. Um, Stoicism is based on the notion, as one French writer put it in the nineteenth century, of of being of having acceptance for the idea when your time is up of walking into the void, walking into the void and accepting that and seeing that that notion as a beautiful thing and not as a, a regretful thing. What are some common criticisms of Stoicism that you come up against? Um, I think people would see it um, as as a, a view that offers um, no hope. Um, so um, imagine a Christian convert at the time of Marcus Aurelius 
they would be saying, well, we found a, a faith that has come to us from the eastern part of the empire um, that teaches um, that there is, there is another life and that there is a pathway to a life after this one. This, this life is only a rough cut uh, version of the life to come. Um, and the appeal of Christianity historically in the latter phase of the Roman Empire was that it did offered it did offer a kind of hope that the the exhausted religions of the Greek Roman world could no longer summon. And so given there is a global stoic week, why do you think there is a resurgence now that at least I've I appear to have picked up on? I think it Everyone's got to answer that um, from their own perspective. From, from mine, it might pick up some of the, the remnants of existentialism in our thinking. Um, how do you make sense of this short time between <coughs> uh, infinite stretches of obscurity that we we recall that is the time we were born, before we were born, the time after we die. Um, life is a, a short, vivid uh, experience, but, 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 but between the, the obscurity that overtakes us. And I think, I think this is a modern, there's something inherently modern about thinking in these terms and asking the question, how we define ourselves through our actions. And if I've got it right, uh, Marcus Aurelius, as a Stoic, is saying we define ourselves through actions directed at service to our fellow man. I just think, can't be scientific about it, but there's something that appeals to the modern consciousness in that thinking. Uh, if you look at the data, there's been a big loss of faith in, uh, in religion, um, even those that have been religious faiths that have been booming, uh, versions of Islam and evangelical Christianity are according to the most recent data on the decline. Even in the United States, those, those, those who identify as, as non-believers are the biggest growing category um, measured by census data. Um, in that context, therefore, I think, I think some of this stoic thinking offers the best way of rendering sense out of the, uh, the shortness of the lifespan and the absence of any any promise of a, 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 a any evidence of a controlling intelligence guiding our universe. You mentioned um, duty to others, and I'm wondering if this is something that drove your decision to enter politics, or is it something stoicism, something you discovered later in life? I think, I think the uh, the Marcus Aurelius, the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, which any of our listeners. I'm sure would enjoy. It's a short book, and there's a sense of wonder about turning the pages of, a, of something that had been penned by a Roman em emperor um, of the second century, a period of, of relatively, relatively peace, uh, something of the golden age, according to uh, Edward Gibbon in uh, Roman history. His reflections on life um, during the time he was an active an active emperor, um, and I think I think those of us who, who embark on a political career with all the idealism of youth are motivated by something absolutely identical. That is the idea of of um, performing a service, performing a duty, and doing again the idealism of youth, doing admirable things that earns some justifiable honour. I think if you look at you look at a a young person going into politics as I did when I was fifteen and suddenly decided that was going to be my career, it's the, the motivation is the motivation is to, to, to earn some honour in your community by doing good and noble things. And and hence the idea I would I would push forward and that is that politics is a very noble career. Speaking of politics, uh, the, it would be remiss of us not to ask, the for, current foreign minister, 
Maurice Payne is in Prague and uh, said it's an obscene perversion for Russian President Vladimir Putin to speak of Russian soldiers acting as peacekeepers. What, what, what's your analysis looking on at the present situation unfolding? Yeah, well, I, I would agree with uh, what she's saying. If I were foreign minister, I dare say I'd be, I'd be using the, uh, uh, the same words. Um, uh, with all we with all we, we've signed up to uh, in terms of UN principles and other expressions of international law to settle <laughs> uh, disputed boundaries by the movement of troops, to do it by force, to do it unilaterally, not as a result of an international agreement, is wrong. And we've got no alternative but to condemn it as wrong. And given that we're, um, we're not making a military commitment for a, a host of good reasons, um, to apply sanctions with all the difficulties and the ambiguities that go with sanctions. It, it's right that Australia should be moving uh, in line with like-minded countries, um, uh, with our international partners, and, and above all, and I say this again, in the spirit of the United Nations Charter, we should not hesitate to do that um, um, while acknowledging like while acknowledging there have been times when not strictly comparable with what's happening in Ukraine, um, the the West as frequently as as recently as the invasion of Iraq in March 2003 has acted contrary to the UN Charter. All the more reason to invoke it, and to invoke it in these circumstances in condemning what President Putin has done. Well, if the first casualty of war is truth, that brings to mind. Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, who, of course, published the Iraq war documents, um, is presently in Belmarsh in prison without charge. Are you still paying close attention to his situation? Yes, I am. And I, I, I think it's increasingly uh, disgraceful and distasteful that the, the current Australian Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister cannot say to our American partners to whom we're so close and for whom we do so much. You've got an Australian, you're seeking his extradition. We are critical of Julian Assange, but we're obliged to speak up for an Australian citizen, someone with an Australian passport, and say, we want you to drop this extradition action. I am convinced that if the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister said that to, the American, to our American counterparts, America would oblige. Don't forget... Uh, the previous American president gave a pardon to Chelsea Manning. Chelsea Manning um, was implicit, um, was complicit with Julian Assange in publishing material that we deserved to know about, about American war crimes, uh, about the shooting of innocent Iraqis from a, uh, from a helicopter um, above a, a Baghdad street. Absolutely, this is what was exposed by Assange and, and Chelsea Manning. One of them is being pardoned by, by President Obama and the other, an Australian, deserves to be pardoned and would be, would be, um, would see the extradition dropped if Australia would only show a modicum of independence and say to America, this is what we want. Mm. And are you hopeful of maybe after the election or before the election or do you have any optimism at all? I, I don't know. I've got no grounds for saying um, a Labor government would show the, uh, uh, the spirit uh, to do this, but I certainly hope they would. And um, to their great credit, Anthony Albanese and Mark Dreyfus um, have said that... Um, uh, they said earlier this year... Uh, sorry, sorry, uh, early last year, uh, if I recall correctly that um, Australia should be asking America to quiet... What I've urged, to quietly drop the attempt to extradite, extradite Assange. Um, this is all about no, no, nothing else in Assange's behaviour. It is all about the exposure of material on American war crimes. And the, the world deserved to know that. American public opinion deserved to know that. And... Um, uh, the pardon given to Chelsea Manning ought to be reflected in, in America dropping the extradition of an Australian citizen. I cannot believe that we've lost so much sense of independence um, that we're not prepared to raise this with America at the end of the meeting about, about more substantial geostrategic matters. 
and putting America in a position where they'd have to say, OK, you're our ally, and we're not entirely happy with this, but uh, you've asked us to do this, we, we will drop the extradition forthwith, and Assange, who's paid a huge price in this foul prison um, for, for, for any wrongs he may have done, would walk out and join his, his wife and children. I just urge people listening to this to write a letter and to take an interest in it because it is a, a terrible injustice and worthy to die in jail. It would be on all our consciences. And I pointed out this to Maurice Payne, not least hers, not least hers. Well, to hear more from Bob Carr as part of the lineup at the inaugural Stoicon X Melbourne, it takes place this Saturday from 9.45 to 5pm at the Greek Centre for Contemporary Culture in Melbourne CBD. For more information and tickets, please head to stoiconxmelbourne.com.au and it's been a privilege to talk to the Honourable Bob Carr. Thank you very much. Been my privilege. Many thanks. Triple. Ah. So I was in Robe after Christmas uh, this year uh, with Abby's family. We go there every year. We've spoken about that before. Um, and this one morning we went to a cafe to go out for breakfast. Uh, there are about half a dozen of us. Um, and then this young boy comes up to us. He was probably about 10 and then struck up a conversation with us. And we're like, oh, this, this is a pretty confident kid coming up to a table full of adults and, and just chatting away and seeing how we were. Um, and it turns out he was our waiter. Like oh. he, We... Couldn't believe it when he asked for our order. Then it clicked. We're like, oh, all right, okay, all right. Um, yeah, well, and then we placed our orders. Um, but we couldn't get over it. Like he, he was, like I said, about 10 years old. He was so young. Uh, and I think we found when we were in Robe, a lot of the time over summer they'll have overseas uh, travellers that are working at the pubs and at the bars and cafes and all of that. Um, and they didn't have that. So there was, even at the... Um, like the supermarket, there were, the staff across the board in Rome were just really, really young. Oh, the child labour's back. Well, apparently. Well, we, we didn't want to question it, but we were wondering. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he was great. And um, there were no issues with any of the staff. Everyone was actually really great. It was just an eye-opener because we hadn't seen such young yeah. people and working. Their, and their chimney was spotless. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I've been served by a 10-year-old and it, they brought over a cocktail. Oh, no. Oh, okay. And, well, it wasn't and food or whatever, but they asked me how everything was. I'm like, well, am I supposed to give feedback on this alcoholic drink to a 10-year-old? <laughs> yes. Like, you know, you know, what's your favourite? No. <laughs> yeah. I you wouldn't served, recommend. I got served by a child at a florist the other day and it was the first time, I don't like this, it's happening everywhere. Really? And again, I was at the, it was at like a florist in a shopping centre, so that's irrelevant to the story. I don't know why I added that detail in. Anyway, and... So I was just looking at the flowers and I think it's because because it was like in kind of a thoroughfare, I thought maybe yeah. these kids are just like walking through. Mm. And then this young boy and girl, would have been primary school age, came up and said, oh, how are you going? I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm good, thank you. <laughs> um, and then she said, oh, you know, um, let me know if you need any help. And then I was like, okay. And then I realised they were working there and then yeah. she you know, did the whole thing. Are these for a gift? Are these for home? And then went and wrapped them up and then did the – I was just – and I was like, amazing. So – do child labour laws not pertain to family businesses? I think that must be. Yeah. Yeah, you turn, turn a blind eye to that. Yeah. Yeah. We um, picked up, Abby went inside and picked up some takeaway uh, and she was served by the most professional, like, child. Oh. <laughs> uh, and, like, she's coming in and she's like, hi, uh, order for Abby. She's like, yep, look, that's all gluten-free. Everything was cooked separately. Uh, we've added a drink in there because it's such a large order okay. um, and receipt is attached. Do you need anything else? And Abby was just so shocked. Absolutely. <laughs> it, was, it was just wonderful. But, yeah, I think you, you know, when you talk about um, family businesses and, yeah. and people working there, um, our parents growing up, they owned, like, a, a supermarket and a liquor store. But <clears throat> we weren't allowed anywhere near the registers. And we were probably 10, I think 12 by the time they'd sold that. But mm. it was like, uh-uh. I think a couple of times I went to serve, I'm just like, because I was hanging around the counter. Mum's like, can you get out of the way? Yeah. Mm. I was like, can I help you? <laughs> so, because yeah. there's been no mall rats for two years. What do you mean? You know, mall rats. Kids who hang around malls. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, because they're not allowed. They're, yeah, they weren't allowed. No, they're definitely around. I've seen them. They're back. Oh, they're back. But do you reckon, do the mall rats look over at, like, the prepubescent florist go, you sell out? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> supposed to be one of us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> supposed to be grimacing in the corner. Um, and, and is it, 
do they get patronised? Like, had you talked to a child waiter <laughs> like an adult? Oh, or? hello. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't. I'm, that's my worst thing. So, like, tiny, tiny little kids, fine. Yeah. Teenagers, great. Talk to them like I would talk to, to you. you yeah, That's the age I teach. But primary school, I have no idea what to do with you. I don't know that <laughs> I should talk to you like you so little cute, or if it, you know, talk to you about Ukraine. Like I just can't yeah. angle it. It's really I think hard. The com- when we were in Rome, the confidence of this young boy was like he had swagger. He would just had a tea towel in his oh. back pocket, <laughs> just like yeah, no, I was picking up glasses, and just he was just so confident <laughs> in chatting to people around that we would just. Yeah, it made us more comfortable. Uh, once we were over the shock, just like, how wonderful. Yeah. Mm. Very cool. It was, Simone Yuboli was talking about, come on, come on, with that child actor. Yeah. And apparently one thing that makes this film good is seeing Joaquin Phoenix, who I'm not sure is actually a parent in real life, talk to this child like they're an adult. Mm. And it's apparently a bit of a lesson in parenting, yeah. just in terms of relating. It's There was an interesting thing I read about um, parents – instinctively without knowing it are constantly pitching their communication with children at just ahead of where they're at they do it without no without without no, and they're constantly advancing them ah. and so it's interesting to get you know if you're hanging around a child and then some schmo comes in and goes meanwhile the kid's like i'm at work can i get you a mojito <laughs> Ah, that's right. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or via the Triple R website. <laughs>